them to the book of James, James chapter 4. This should be our final sermon in James chapter 4. If you would stand with me, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us, and then I want to read verse 13 through 17. Let's pray. Oh, blessed God, we come now to the sweet preaching of the gospel, and we pray for light, we pray for understanding, we pray, O oh Lord, for a sovereign interaction in our hearts. Lord, we pray that what we hear with our ears would not simply stay outward and outside of us, but Lord, what you intend for Christians to know and understand and to act upon, Lord, you would sovereignly till our hearts to receive it where it would bear fruit. Well, take this truth this morning, Lord, oh, bless this preacher. Make, Lord, these words understandable. Lord, in the weakness of human frailty, make this gospel powerful because of your glory. Make us, Lord, to see and understand and receive what we know to be true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to read verse 13 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, it is quite possible for Christians to fall into various sin and temptations. We should avoid the mindset that if we find ourselves or others struggling for a season with some carnality or some sin that we are not Christians and they may not be Christians as well. Now, I'm not saying we're to never go there, but I'm saying that should not be the first place we go. It is possible for Christians to fall into grievous, dangerous sin. We see this from the chapter itself. If we go all the way back up to verse 1 of chapter 4, let's read those first few verses. Notice how James is addressing these Christians. He says, what source of quarrels and conflicts come, um, uh, uh, quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures and wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. You commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. You fight, you quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask. Look at verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And I'm just stop there just to help us think about the context James is addressing Christians that have fallen. Some have fallen severely from grace. Now, not from grace in the sense of losing their salvation, but grace in the sense that they had abandoned their use of the means of grace, that they had at some point pulled back, they had shrunk away from giving themselves over to the worship, to prayer, to the study of Scripture, the memorizing of Scripture, the understanding of Scripture. They had at some point, due to their temptations and the carnality of their own hearts, due to their severe circumstances where they found life to become very grievous, very difficult... They had, instead of giving themselves over to these means by which God would aid them in and through these times and temptations, they had sought their own way, they have sought their own understanding, and in essence, they have done what so many of us do 
all the time we become our own gods. We determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. We determine for ourselves the path we need to take in order for things to work out the way we want them to work out. I think we can relate. I think all of us can relate to this mentality, to this missteps. And yet this morning we have the the wonderful opportunity to take and and look at what James says about how do they get there? How does this happen? How do we retrace our steps when we ask this question, when we find ourselves, when we look in the mirror in the morning or the afternoon or the evening, whenever that may be, we look in the mirror and we see who we are and we don't like it and we ask this internal question and we're talking to ourselves and we say, what happened? What happened? How did this happen? I've been doing so well. I've been, it wasn't that long ago I had a fire, a hunger, a desire like never before. I'm a member of a good church, maybe not the best church, but a good church. The Bible's preached, Christ is honored. Sin is preached. The gospel of grace is preached and announced. Jesus is exalted. It's not the church. Our conscience tells us that it's not the circumstances. Our conscience tells us it's us. It's us. How do we know this? Look at verse 17. This will be the verse I'm going to focus on this morning. Notice what James says, and I hope I can tie this verse that looks so out of place to the context itself. Look at verse 17. It says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Three things that I want to bring out of this verse this morning to help us understand, I believe, or at least understand what I think James is saying here. Now, the first thing I want to bring to you is a grammatical emphasis. Now, this is a little technical, but I think it's important as we come to Scripture and as we broaden and deepen our understanding of the Bible itself. Now, when we come to this Chapter, or we come to this portion in James, there is a grammatical emphasis in the original language that you don't easily pick up or necessarily pick up in the English. You can if you know what to look for, but I want to point it out to you because it's an emphasis that's there. And it's an emphasis that helps us wrestle with and make some decisions that James is calling these Christians, and I think even us today, to make. Now, the emphasis is underneath, look at the verse 17. If you have the NASB, like the one I'm preaching out of, the translation I'm preaching out of, you see the word therefore. Now, the Greek word that underlines this is a word that James uses only in chapter 4 and chapter 5, twice. That's it in the whole book. So that tells us something in the first century mind because they didn't have emboldened words. They didn't have ways to uh, necessarily highlight. But there was a mindset in the uh, ancient world that when words were only used in isolation, they were important. That is, you may have a letter that may have a word used one time. And the reader would read that and go, now why did he use that word? Why that word? And the purpose of using that odd word in that situation would be to cause us to pray, seek God's face, seek God's understanding, seek commentary. I mean, seek some biblical wisdom in order that we might understand the divine mind behind the human writer why God used that word purposely in that text. And that's what's going on here. Let me point them out to you because I don't want to spend all our time here, but I want to bring to you this grammatical emphasis. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now that's a question. Therefore, there's your word. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice, when James uses this word in this chapter, the very first time he uses it is to cause us to consider our relationship with God, our relationship with the world, and ask the question, have I, now seeking the world's friendship and companionship, made myself an enemy to God? Now there's a command, there's an action being demanded here, even though it's not demanded. Like, look at the word itself. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What do you think the demand is there? Without explicitly saying, don't be friends with the world. What's the implication? Strengthen your friendship with God. Wing yourself off of this companionship of the world. What have you done? What are you doing? Do you not know that one leads to favor and blessing and the other companionship leads to destruction and devastation? That's what we're supposed to do. It reminds me, beloved, I want to say this and quickly pass on, but it reminds me of the way a modern education system is today which is indoctrination, not education. Education is teaching, is, is learning how to think, is learning how to reason, is learning how to, to debate and argue and, and roll things over in your mind. Discernment to make judgments between this and that, these things and those things. It's, it's being able to come and wrestle and reason through things and come to the right determination and decision. That's education. James is not indoctrinating us per se. He's causing Christians to rise up and use their sanctified and regenerated mind. And to come to application of these things and to look in the mirror and say, look, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. I've repented of my sins. I have an eternal inheritance waiting waiting upon me in glory. How should I now live? What is this friendship of the world causing? It's causing enmity with God. Let's move on. Verse, we we see it right here in verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Again, the emphasis here. Submit, therefore, to God. You can see how James is strengthening his his command. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you. It's obvious what James sees here as submission to God is resisting the devil. You can't submit to God and continue to walk with the devil. You can't submit to God and continue to love the devil. You can't do it. Submission to God. What does it look like to submit to God? It looks like resistance to evil. It looks like resistance to the kingdom of darkness. It looks like resistance to this world and its philosophies and its ideologies and its idolatry. That's what it looks like. James is wanting to help us understand what it looks like to live in a fallen world with harsh circumstances and be Christian. Because the first thing we want to do when things don't go our way is make it our, we want to make our own way. First thing we want to do is step outside of grace and say, I can handle this, I can do better myself. And we don't really begin to contemplate and understand what we're really saying. God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know as much as I do. That's what we're saying when we do things like that. Now, it's used in verse 17, but let's go to chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Notice here the command of what? Patience. Now, there's two things here I want to bring to your attention. Number one, sometimes... Difficult circumstances can last a long time. I mean, I'm not going to preach and say, don't worry, be patient, it's going to pass, it's in a few days. No. Here's, but here, look, here's the thread. Here's the thread of glory and the thread of God's compassion tied to this. 
You can suffer with an illness, a debilitating disease, all your life. What's the, what's the grace in that? Your life is but a vapor. In the span of eternity, it's but a vapor. Imagine if you lived 998 years old with a debilitating disease. There is some compassion there. There is some compassion that in a fallen world where sin now has a hold that God lessened the time span of man's life. That is grace. That's gracious. Now we could say, well, we could have 900 years to work out righteousness and justice, but we also have 900 years to fail and to sin and of seasons of difficulty and all of these other things. So it's a really, it can be a two-edged sword. Amen. But what does James call us to do? You need to be patient like the farmer's patient. In the last place he uses this right there in verse 16 of chapter 5. Look at there with me. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We see here an emphasis of the means of grace. We see here that, you know, there's really nothing new under the sun and there's really nothing new in the Christian church. There's nothing new among God's people. God has given to His people a system of, of, of grace. He's given to, the, to God's people means of grace to tend to. And if we do this in faith, if we do this in the conviction of love for God, uh, uh, hatred for sin, a love for our neighbor, guess what happens? We grow in grace. We, we end up with the, the ability. We end up being able to see in our lives the blossoms of righteousness and holiness. That's what we see. That's what we see. That's the fruit. That's the fruit. And we know it to be of, divine, of a divine origin because it's the Holy Spirit bringing forth the fruit. And the Holy Spirit brings forth righteousness, holiness. The Holy Spirit brings into your life a kindness, a compassion, a, a, a mercy that was never there before. Or if it was there, it's, it's even greater now. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in God's people due to the means of grace. Now that brings me to my second point of the message this morning. And in the second point, I want to address the verse itself and deal with what, is, what is, can be seen as these aggravations of sin. The aggravations of sin. In fact, you want to, if you write that down, either make a mental note of it or write it down. Because look right there with me in verse 17. It says, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him in his sin. Now we see in verse 17, two aggravations of sin. First of all, we see a person that James is addressing is someone who has the knowledge of sin. They know what sin is. And they even have the ability not to do it. So we see here two things. Knowledge and ability. Knowledge and ability. James focuses on this, these two aggravations. Now, knowledge of what? No, it's not of the whole Bible. It, it's not of a, a certain, necessarily, one doctrine over another. I think generally and broadly speaking, according to the context of the book itself, it's knowledge of the will of God. It's knowledge of God's will. Meaning this, brothers and sisters, if we look back in the book of James, it's, it's God's will if we find ourselves right, falling into circumstances and difficulties where we must what? Pray. Be patient. 
sit back and, and, and not react, but act in a biblical and godly way, we must determine for ourselves according to the truth of God's Word. Why? What is God's will in this circumstance? What is God's will in this matter? Remember, we have chapter 1, the man that comes into the Scriptures and he looks into the perfect law of liberty. What does he look at in the Scriptures? He looks and sees himself, but what's he comparing himself with and to? The will of God. But what happens to this man? He walks away and does what? He forgets. He forgets what he sees. He forgets what he sees about himself. Now the word see there is a, is a correlation with knowledge. What he understands. He looks in the Bible and guess what? Even the simplest of mind is able to look at the Bible and gain gospel truths out of it. What we must believe. Things we must do. There's some hard things in here, no doubt about it. Even the Apostle Peter said there are things that Paul wrote that are deep. Those are the things I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about those basic things that you and I all know to be right and true. And you know how we get there? We get there in the plain reading of Scripture. The plain reading of Scripture. No. He goes away. He forgets the kind of man he is. Who showed him the kind of man he is? God did. Where did God show him that? In the Bible. God showed him his will. And what does he do? He goes away. He doesn't do the will of God because he forgets it. He forgets the will of God. And I, I mean, again, not going there and addressing this idea of... Um, of, of apostasy, but this is exactly what James is dealing with because he's what he's saying is, listen, forgetfulness is actually a step toward apostasy. Go read the book of Hosea. A lot of the Puritans and Reformers will cite Hosea in this chapter of James. And they'll say, look, what did, what, what did Gomer, what was Gomer's problem? Why did Gomer prostitute herself the way she did? You know what, you know what Hosea says about her? She forgot her God. Why did the nation of Israel apostatize from God and go and serve other gods upon the hills and among the, the meadows and all of the various uh, places of idolatry? Why? Because they forgot who God was. They forgot Him. They forgot all that He had done for them. They had forgotten about His glory. They had forgotten about His promises. And they become so consumed by the contemporary gods of the day, they forgot about God. Listen to me, beloved. Forgetfulness is not passive. You don't just somehow forget God. You replace God. That's how you forget. Some... some one so glorious and great, you replace him. And you replace God with pleasure, carnality, worldliness, bitterness, selfishness. That's how you forget God. You forget, that's why Jesus, you can see here this, this thread that James is weaving for us out of the uh, Beatitudes and out of the Sermon on the Mount. Because, you know, he can probably still hear it echoing in his mind what Jesus said. You can't serve God and mammon. To love one is to what? Hate the other. Once you begin serving the other, once you begin putting your hands to this world, once you begin watching the philosophies and, and imbibing and drinking in the, uh, the, uh, the adultery and the idolatry of the day, I promise you, my brothers and sisters, you will forget your covenant God. You'll forget Him. You'll forget Him. It's inevitable. You cannot serve two gods. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's what he means by knowledge. What does he mean by this ability? Well, he means by this not just knowing what to do, but it is having the ability to carry it out and do it. For example, when someone hears the preaching of the gospel and they hear the, about the glorious Savior Jesus Christ and they hear the command to repent of their sins, guess what all men have the ability to do? 
to repent of their sins, to call upon God for forgiveness, to say to Him, will you forgive me, Father, for sinning against you? And not to do it is sin to Him or her. These are aggravations, beloved. You know, the Bible talks about various aspects of the conscience or various characteristics of the conscience, right? We can, we can have a wounded conscience. We can wound our consciences. We can have an over-scrupulous conscience. We can have an over-hypersensitive conscience that... that that doesn't lend itself to peace among the body of Christ, but it's, it's a constant aggravation to the body of Christ because of an oversensitive and scrupulous conscience. Paul deals with that in Romans 14. But here, brothers and sisters, in verse 17, we have a violated conscience, a scorned conscience. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, I I think we need to make sure we make the right connections and and, and, and hear with our ears and and perhaps, you know, hopefully receive in our hearts that that this conscience being this, this, if you will, deputy, this, this silent or this invisible deputy of our soul governing and watching over us, if you will. And I don't want to deal with a misinformed conscience. I don't want to deal with an erroneous conscience. I thought about maybe a series on this, on the topic of conscience, but not now. Just just listen to what I'm saying about this violated conscience. There, it's impossible, my brothers and sisters, to violate our consciences and not violate God. It's impossible to scorn our consciences and not not scorn God. It's impossible. When we violate our consciences, we are violating God. When we act in scorn, contempt with our consciences, we are acting in contempt to God. Let's look at some passages of Scripture. And let me just kind of give you this this, um, flavor or feel, if you will, this, this sense of what exactly James is talking about here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I think you're going to see this this correlating aggravation with knowledge and ability. All right, everybody turn in their Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 11. Or let's let's back up and um, verse 8. Or verse 9. Or what... Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give you what what is good to those who ask Him? Now what do we see here? We see this idea that even in God's, among God's common grace, this, this idea, even this intuitive knowledge, what, we know that what? When a son, even, even an unenlightened man knows that when his son asks for bread, what does he give him? Bread. He knows what to give and he has the ability to give him the bread. That's the, that's the, that's what, that's what James is dealing with here. You know what to do. You know it not only in in the revelation of God, God has certainly shown it to you, but you also know it intuitively. That is what? 
that God made us in His image and now we've been redeemed and recreated in Christ, those holy and righteous desires are fanned into flame by the presence of the Holy Spirit and we know we shouldn't love the world. We know we shouldn't hate our neighbor. We know we shouldn't be envious and selfish. We know these things, but not only do we know it personally, we know it because God says not to do it. And we know when we do it, we're sinning. And we know it's wrong. But we don't ever contemplate what it does to us and what it does to God. We seem to stop there. And we don't concern ourselves with what it does to others, what it does to ourselves, and what it does to God. And we need to make sure we understand these things. We don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. We live as creatures made for God's glory, for His purposes. We live to be happy. God created us to be happy creatures. He created us to use our minds in being happy. He created us using our desires in being happy. The problem is, is what really makes us happy. And if it's not God who created us and given us all things, then we have a problem. We have a problem. Let's look at... um, Notice... Um, I'm just going to point out. Uh, let's see. Let me change. I want to work. Let's see. Go to Luke 12. Go to Luke 12. I can't look up all these verses. Don't have the time. I'd be happy to give them to you if you like. Luke 12, verse 56. And here, again, Jesus is addressing and He's dealing with this sin of hypocrisy. But it's the sin of hypocrisy and related to what we know and how we act. What we know, either what we do or what we don't do. Commission and omission. James is dealing with omission. You know what to do. You're not doing it. But look at verse 57. He says, why do you not even... He says, and... Why do you not even on your own intuitive judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and, and, and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. And I say to you, will you, not get, you will not get out of there until you have paid Uh, For every last sin. What is he saying in this passage? You know what to do. You know to pay your debt. Settle this matter. If you don't settle the matter, guess what happens? You go before the judge. But it's look, they know what to do and they're not doing it. And what is the consequence of it? They suffer. They suffer for knowing what to do, not doing it, and they suffer for it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, do you not know these things are going to happen to you? Talking in in this very earthly sense, isn't he? And and in fact, um, look at John. Look look back up at Luke 12. Look at 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they've entrusted much, to him they will ask all the more. You see there, Jesus is again talking about the parable of the servant. And he says, "What? listen, the one who knows his master is coming back and never prepares for it. He will be judged more harshly. His sins are more aggravated. Why? Because he knew about it. And he had the ability to do something about it. He knew about it and he had the ability to change. And he didn't do it. Turn to Matthew 11. I'm just going to, this will be the last verse. These aggravations, beloved, here's my, my emphasis here. These aggravations are real and they're serious. I mean, Jesus right there taught us, right? If I, if I sin in ignorance, yes, it's sin. 
But the penalty of that sin is less than, the, than sinning in straight-up knowledge, straight-up knowing that what I'm doing is wrong. Okay? Um, we see this not only applied to individuals, but look with me at uh, chapter 11. Look at verse 20. And he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago and sat sat cloth in ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum. Will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom and which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, let me sum this up and move on to my next main point, brothers and sisters. It is clear the Bible teaches us that on judgment day, aggravations are going to be dealt with. Did we sin in knowledge? What The sins that will also be judged are not only the sins we commit, but the sins we commit by not doing what we ought to do. What should Chorazin and Bethsaida should have done? What should they have done when Jesus in their presence preached the gospel? What should they have done They should have repented of their sins and embraced Jesus Christ and forsaken their ways and followed after Him, becoming His disciples. But what does Jesus say? I didn't go to Sodom and Gomorrah and preach. I didn't go into the cities and to the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. I didn't preach and perform miracles there. I did with you and I preached in your midst and I performed miracles in your midst. All encouraging you to repent of your sins. And you have not done so. I tell you right now, this day, on that great day of judgment, that's far in the future, on that day, when you stand before God, you will receive a harsher, stricter judgment than those cities of the plains that I destroyed from heaven with fire and brimstone. What do you think should have happened after that denouncement? But what do we see in human nature? A hardness. A callousness. A defiance to God. An unwillingness to yield and to humble oneself before God and say, you're right. I don't know what I'm doing. Last passage, Hebrews 10. Mm, Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I don't know if there are stronger words to be said. I really don't. If these words do not penetrate our hearts, they are cold and dead and hard as stone. You asked the question maybe this morning, you said, well, is it really that bad, Pastor? Yes, we've looked at some really harsh verses and... Um, I mean, but do they all? You know, if if I know to do to do good, and I know that to I need to do God's will. I know I need to glorify God. I mean, if I find myself uh, in certain situations, yes, I, I need to do these things. Um, how? But you know, does it does it always end up badly? Well, let me just mention a few names 
And I want you to ask yourself, or at least I want you to answer for yourself that question I just posed. Think about Adam. Adam knew what to do. He knew what God required of him, and he knew how to glorify God. He knew that he was going to glorify God by keeping that law written upon his heart perfectly in righteousness and holiness and innocence, yes, but also covenantally by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That Adam knew that if I abstain from eating from that tree and walk in the love of God and the love of my neighbor, I will glorify God. He didn't do it. And what happened? He died. He died. He died the very, the, the, the most, the, the, he died the worst death of all the deaths. And you know what that, that is? He lost God's presence. That's the worst of deaths. See, brothers and sisters, on this side of the fall, guess you know we're all going to die physically. We, 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 we prayed about that this morning. We're all going to die physically. This body isn't getting better. It's failing. And it's going to continue to fail. Augustine said it this way. He says, I'm not sure in, in his book on confessions. He said, I'm not sure if I would describe it a life, a dying life or a living death. I'm not sure which one it is. But he's living with the reality, right? As a philosopher, he's living with the reality that we are all going to die. And that question is, though, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is, will I in this dying life live in the presence of God and have him and own him? And then the next life translate into his presence immediately. See, that's the question. When a man loses or a woman loses that presence of God, you know what? They have darkness and coldness and hatred, prejudice. They love carnality. They're selfish. All the things that it means to be unhuman, they are. Now, they don't always, ex- they don't always exhibit those things, right? Because to do that would be a monster. We call them psychopaths. We call them monsters, when, when men or women don't live within these social confines of, of common grace and they exercise a hatred and prejudice and, a, and a, um, a selfishness that murders and all of these other... You know, we call them monsters. That's what we call them. We don't call them human. Cain. We're not going to turn there, but I'm going to give you the verse reference. Go to, you can go to Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 15, and you know what you're going to read about Cain? What does God say? You know sin is crouching at your door. You know it. And its desire is for you. You know this, Cain. But you must master it. But Cain didn't master his carnal desires. Cain knew what to do. Cain knew to yield to God, to put his faith in Christ. He knew to repent of his sins. He knew how to glorify God in worship. But Cain did not do that. Cain forfeited God's glory and exercised his own carnal hatred and prejudices against his brother that had God's favor and murdered him. Saul. Old King Saul. God told him what to do. God told him and gave him specific directions. 1 Samuel 13, 11 through 14. Saul didn't do it. Saul went ahead and didn't wait on God. He didn't exercise patience. He didn't glorify God by obeying God's own commands. He decided to offer the bulls and, the, and all of these sacrifices himself. And what does Samuel say when he walks up to him? Why did you do this? Why did you disobey God? Why didn't you not glorify God? You knew what to do, and now God has ripped the kingdom from your own very hands. How did that turn out? He violated his conscience. And he tried to justify it by saying, but but, but we worship God. 
We were worshiping God. He tried to, he tried to justify with a good thing. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but Samuel, we were worshiping. We were sacrificing. But it wasn't your job, Saul. God didn't give you that privilege. God didn't give you that right. He told you what to do, and you didn't do it. You've ripped the kingdom from your hands. Judas. How did it work out for Judas? Well, let me say this about Saul. What do we see Saul doing after that? We see Saul downward spiral. I'm going to give you the highest. Listen to me. You know why Saul was in such a downward spiral? Because he hated the one that God had chosen. When we hate those that walk with God the closest, there's a problem with us. Look at yourself. When we can hate the people that walk closest with God, something has happened in our consciences. They've been hardened. They've been violated. And now the downward spiral has begun, and now we lash out at those who are the closest to God. Judas. All along the way, Judas violated his conscience. The Bible tells us that Judas violated his conscience by stealing from the, communi- uh, from the treasury of the disciples and taking the money for himself. His greed becomes so powerful and so strong, and he was able to do it so many times, and he never got caught. Humanly speaking, Jesus knew what he was doing. That these little acts of theft gave birth to a monumental act of greed whereby he sold and betrayed his friend Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He had violated and scorned his conscience to the point that he could actually sell and betray Christ. Don't say it will never happen to you because it has happened to many professing believers. I want to close. There's other verses I want to go to. Um, I think about on the positive side, men that have shown repentance and David, Solomon, Paul, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I, I, I acted in ignorance. Paul is saying, I wasn't violating my kind. I acted in ignorance. I didn't know the church was God's people when I was putting them in prison. When I was, when I was facilitating their executions, I didn't know. And God had mercy on me. God was kind and gracious to me because I acted, as Paul said, I acted in ignorance. The last thing I want to bring out in the text, and I don't think I'm going to be able to give it everything that it's worth, but listen to me. What does James go on to say? Um, James says not only, um, let me read it here. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let me just deal with this final statement. This, it is sin to him. It is sin to him. It is sin to him and her. What is this sin? It's the missing the mark. What's the mark? To glorify God. Why are you made and created? To glorify God. When we fail to glorify God in our circumstances, in our situations, in the gifts and talents we've been given. You know, all of you have gifts and talents. God's given each, each one of us unique and special abilities. And when we fail to use them for His glory, guess what we're doing? We're sinning. We're sinning. We're missing the mark. Second Peter chapter two verse twenty one says it's better it's better that one didn't know what to do or ever learn what to do than to know it and not do it. 
brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest who knows what you need. And the Lord Jesus not only knows what you need, but He is here to help you to do all that He's called you to do. But, but if you turn, if you violate your conscience, you are spurning Him. And He's not going to help you. He's going to judge you. He's going to chasten you as children. That's what He's going to do. He's going to spank you. He's going to take away your happiness. And you're going to be morose. You're going to be downtrodden. He's going to take away your fulfillment and you're always going to be looking for something else. You're always going to be wandering and looking and longing for something. You're going to go from one thing to the next. I mean, He's going to take away those things. He's going to take away joy. Why? Because all of these things are the fruit of His presence and communion that are yours. They are yours. They belong to all of God's children. And all we have to do is act on them. You need Christ. You need His grace. To have Him is to have His grace. And to have Him is to put off carnality and to put off these sins of omission. Brothers and sisters, I guess to sum it all up and to close this morning, let me just say that our Father spoke from heaven and He said, this is my beloved Son, speaking of Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. You know, He's never said that about us. But if we are in Christ, we have that blessing. Now I want to encourage brothers and sisters, are we, who's here, don't raise your hand, how many of us are guilty of worldliness? How many of us scorn our consciences? How many of us know what we need to be doing and we're not doing it? Now I want to encourage you to flee to Jesus I want to, because guess what? Jesus stands there and He says, I'll forgive you and I'll take you back. And I will refresh your joy. I will refresh your happiness. I will refresh your satisfaction. I will give you the things that you rightly, that are rightly yours in the blessed covenant of grace. I'll give them to you beyond measure, but you got to come to me. You got to come to me. And those who come after me, they get all of this. And Jesus said, listen, it's not just the one who knows what to do. It's the one who knows and does. These are my children. These are my brothers and sisters. The Pharisees knew what to do. They didn't do it. God can raise up children out of stones who believe and walk after him in love and mercy. And I pray that that's what we would do this morning, taking heed to this verse. Brothers and sisters, let us not be guilty of what? Scorning our consciences. Let's pray.